Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. Hello, a quick plug before... Josie and Robin's book shambles this week. My book, I'm a Joke and So Are You, has come out into the shops this week. I may well be coming to a bookshop near you or a book festival or a venue, but it is a book uh, about comedians and humans and creativity, and it includes interviews with Alan Moore and Sarah Kendall and Sophie Scott and Noel Fielding and Josie Long, amongst others. Yes, Robin's book is finally out. It is out today. So if you haven't already pre-ordered it, head to your favourite bookselling website or your high street bookseller and grab a copy. And we'll also the book will also be available at lots of our upcoming live events uh, where Robin will be signing them as well. Ilkley Literature Festival this weekend. Uh, on the 6th, we will be doing Book Shambles live with a special guest, uh, Jeremy Dyson, writer, or co-writer rather, of League of Gentlemen and Ghost Stories. We're going to be at QED on the 12th and the 13th of October. Uh, we're going to be at the Manchester Science Festival with Sophie Scott and Charles Fernyhoe on uh, October 22. And then our big launch event for Robin's book uh, in London on November 1st. Uh, at King's Place, uh, Robin on stage with Josie Long and Grace Petrie and Stuart Lee and Philippa Perry. Uh, there for that, tickets for that one are 15 quid and that includes a discount off the book as well. CosmicShambles.com obviously has the details for all of these as well as lots of other stuff for you to check out. Lots of new blogs from Robin, Dean Burnett and Ginny Smith and all the other people that blog for Shambles. New videos up this week as well with Robin and uh, Michelle Dickinson and lots of other people. So do check those out. And remember, none of this, uh, this podcast, any of the blogs, anything is possible without your support on Patreon. So thank you very much for your support there. And if you'd like to contribute uh, to our Patreon, to us making all this stuff, make sure you go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and you can pledge there as little as a dollar a month. Lots of rewards, extended episodes and all that available for Patreon pledges as well. So now on to the episode with Robin and uh, Josie's substitute. This week is Alan Moore, because why not? And Drunken Baker's author, Barney Farmer. And uh, just a quick note, we've split this episode into two parts. Uh, We ended up chatting for nearly two hours in a particular front room in Northampton. So we thought we'd split it up into two parts. Part two will be available later in the week. And of course, uh, an extended edition is available for our lovely Patreon supporters. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to uh, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, today the part of Josie Long will be played by Alan Moore. Hi. He's got it off pat, hasn't it? It sounds exactly like it Josie. Sounds He's got yes. all, She's in the room. The, yeah. um, and also joined by someone who's written, uh, I think, I'll, I'll say for Alan as well, but he can then argue against that. One of my favourite books that I've I've read this year, and I think one that you thoroughly enjoyed yeah. as well, which is uh, Barney Farmer, who has written uh, Drunken Baker, which is based on the comic strip uh, that he co-created and still appears in, in Viz, and it is a journey into uh, the mind. It's, it's probably 
the most melancholy recipe book that has ever been created. I think all of that is is fair comment. It's it's a it's if, broadly if you, accurate. I will I'll endorse that message. Yeah. If, if hello, you, hello, everybody. The, but yeah, if you if you don't know, uh, uh, you should first of all you should know that uh, also we just uh, George Bestial, uh, the Mail Online, uh, Whoopsile Apocalypse, and uh, some I always get this one wrong because it's not some mothers do have them. It's, it's, it's scum scum, scum mothers, mothers do, who'd do, have do, them. Do, do, yeah. have them. Yeah, and there, there's all the stuff that you, there was the. Um, the farmer Healy stuff that you were doing in Private Eye. Oh, yeah, um, we do we do all sorts of bits. Dakers, oh, Acres, I Dakers. remember that was particularly poignant. They're too, they're too fussy though, proud of oh. too, They're too exacting. They have, they have journalistic yeah. standards. It was, yeah. it was just getting exhausting. Whereas Dodgem Logic allowed you, as far as I remember, the one that stuck in my mind of Dodgem Logic was uh, the uh, lollipop headed and lollipop genitalia uh, mortuary. Oh, oh. Doctor Treble. Dr. Yeah. Cheap was on it, yeah. That did was the, good. My other favourite was, was Crystal Meth and Alistair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first male online is in um, Dodge and Logic, sort of. He's, he's, kind, he's kind of the character of the Prototype male online. for the character. Yeah, he was um, a different name. He was the same character. He was beaten to death by some Morris men. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I think there was definitely a barrel, and there's a moustache involved. When I'd thought back on that, I'd thought that must have been an early one in Viz. I'd forgotten that it was one that I'd published. Yeah, you could possibly yeah. take Viz to the cleaners over that. I don't know. I probably could, couldn't I? Yeah, it's worth looking yeah. into. I'll think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, today is uh, so we're going to talk about uh, your, but also. Because I'm going to use my own podcast to plug my work today. This is if anyone's listening to it on the day this goes out, is the first day of uh, my book. Uh, I'm a joke, and so are you. Uh, coming out, and uh, so uh, you can have a copy of that, uh, Barney, because you gave me a copy of Drunken Baker, and Thank it's, you very uh, much. it includes a uh, an excellent interview about the nature of imagination with uh, the uh, author and bon viveur Alan Moore. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's one of the books that I've got a whole bunch of books. In fact, they're just over there, which I realised accidentally when I was just shoving them up where for somewhere to sh- to put them. I thought actually most of these books have got bits about me in them. Um, <laughs> I didn't want anyone to think that it was some kind of private shelf that I'd organised deliberately. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely the Lewis section. It's, it's kind of like Dewey Decimal. It's like a, I'm, I'm a, like a genre. I'm the emergent genre. I, I was well. You've got a cameo in. I, I remember there was that Woody Allen story about um, various different characters that kind of end up falling out of uh, books. So suddenly the the world is populated by various fictional characters from Russian novels. And perhaps yeah. what's happening is we're doing the opposite without you realising it. Slowly through uh, an act of attrition and shamanism, we're placing you in so many books that you become less and less. The human Allen no longer exists. And I'll just be some kind of foot. No, in Ian Sinclair or something like that. No, just, I'm not going to let that. I'm going to make you a footnote in you'll me. Be a, you'll be just a, a really. I, I tried to turn you into a stand-up comic years ago, and you eventually saw that we were trying to ruin you. Myself so now it's, it's a footnote that is to be my fate. Isn't you, you'll yeah. be you'll be yeah. a series of impressions. Um, well, we, I'll tell you before I. Oh, Alan, as well. I always bring a book as well. I'll just check. I haven't left any weird notes in it. I probably have. I normally do. Currencies. Was, the best. Uh, oh no, that's uh, that's just a, a, a free post thing that I've used as a bookmark. Broadmoor. Um, Broadmoor revealed Victorian crime in the lunatic asylum is the kind of book that when I see it on my shelf, I think that should be passed on to uh, <laughs> you. Actually, I wish I had this a little while ago. I was 
in the penultimate issue of the league uh, we've got a four page section that is narrated by Richard Dad. Um, we've uh, it's called My Painting My Purgatory and uh, yeah it's narrated by a kind of posthumous Richard Dad, talking about his life because he was I think one of the first patients in Broadmoor oh was he? he mm. was one of the last ones in Bedlam and then they moved him to Broadmoor um, where he was for a number of years sort of incarcerated and uh, yeah I mean those the mental asylums of the Victorian world were overflowing with celebrities you know I mean Lord Bedlam you've got uh, I think Turner's mum uh, John Martin's brother you've got Louis Wayne the uh, the cat artist that uh, I think Savage Pencil that's did. sort of like the gaff the, the prairie I suppose of its day really isn't it so instead of a I spa so. they would just be although it would have been less select than the prairie <laughs> I think and you didn't have to pay quite so much to get in there um, and in fact you'd have had people they'd have been making money off you while you were in there by all the guided tours that uh, the gentry were allowed to take there's the great artist Richard Dad over there well it was more like hey, being cheap there's, there's a lunatic <laughs> doing something really weird and funny and and here's another one doing something kind of really weird oh, and yeah. violent you know um, and here's one doing a lovely picture of some fairies in a wood yeah which yeah. do you want? Can we have the first two? Yes, yeah. that's, that's public tasting. But also, I, I didn't realise I was watching that film that you were um, in that um, Andrew Cotting made uh, with uh, Freddie and Toby Jones, the John Clare one. I didn't realise that you were saying that when, when you still went to, um, when you were at school, Lucia Joyce was still in the asylum in, in All the time that I was there. She was, I think she came to Northampton um, round about, it might have even been before I was born. It might have been the very early 50s. But certainly within a couple of years of my birth. And she was there until the 80s. So, yeah, all the time that I was at school. Um, Lucia Joyce was sort of uh, wandering around in uh, St Andrew's Hospital next door, which was another celebrity mental home. You know, we had everybody there. Um, all the stars in town tonight yeah, yeah absolutely well, I mean it, it was a firmament of stars at, at St Andrews I mean we had uh, I mean John Clare uh, he was there for the last years of his life probably about 20 years something like that um, and then Malcolm Arnold the composer uh, he was because he had terrible problems with uh, both alcohol and mental health issues. Um, he'd been in St Andrews for a while. Um, he was the one who'd written Tamashanta, uh, the um, the thing by Burns about the drunk being pursued by, by, through the night by goblins and witches <laughs> and all the rest of it, which I think was probably autobiographical to some degree. And um, we could all write that story. When uh, uh, when Malcolm Arnold had been in St Andrews for a while presumably drying out, straightening out. He came out of the hospital and must have walked up, he was discharged, and he must have walked up um, 
from the Billing Road up to the nearby Wellingborough Road, and he must have seen uh, one of the local pubs, the uh, the Crown and Cushion, and thought, oh, I'll pass off a pop in there for a drink. And um, he went in, and uh, the Crown and Cushion at that time had one of Northampton's monstrous demonic landlords who um, said, uh, oh, so you, you play the old Joanna, do you? Uh, I see you like a drink. Um, tell you what, you could you could live here at this pub, free. All you'd have to do is to sort of play a few tunes occasionally for the for the customers. And we'll just keep propping up. And yeah, we'll keep supplying the drink and everything. So Malcolm Arnold, uh, the one time, I think he was very nearly the director of the Queen's Music, Sir Malcolm Arnold. You know, the one who'd uh, written the arrangements for Colonel Bogey. Um, he ended up being kept a virtual prisoner at this pub and dragged out of his bed at one in the morning to play Roll Out the Barrel. Um, I bet it was a really good Roll Out the Barrel. I bet it was that tremendous, been... but it would have been to a crowd of abusive drunks who, you know, would have, he wouldn't have had a very good time. I think eventually his family found out where he was and managed to rescue him. I, I'm not sure. I think he might I have half an idea he might have been enjoying that. As long as, the, as long as he was as good as his word and the beer kept flowing. I mean, it was a good roll out of the barrel. No one's going to, you know, they did it with Neasel. Yeah, but... Well, Neasel with that Malcolm Arnold last night. He had the joint rocking. Uh, I think he was getting kind of roughed up by the clientele. I don't think it was a very pleasant relationship. Yeah, just, that's a bit... Yeah, it's I'm surprised. Very nice, that's been, from, from, from having read your really. work for a long time, um, I'm surprised you've romanticised that situation because one thing that you very rarely <laughs> yeah. do yeah. in uh, and we will talk now because because we've got on to uh, art and alcoholism uh, and artisan bakeries I suppose a drunken baker is uh, it's basically it's so it's, it, we we go into the mind of who generally is seen as the uh, the less offensive less brutal of the two in Ebro's yeah bakers, it comes across as a bit nicer and it is. Every now and again, there's a lovely recipe for Victoria Spice. It's it's like it's a kind of there is a death of a salesman quality to it. Those it's, recipes it's, it's do work. By the dreaming way. of by the end of the All day, tested. we will have at least made we'll have made the butterfly cakes and we'll we'll have, we'll have made we oh, do you, the, the way that we can make the scones and then it's all dreams. Even every time they get into the bakery, there's there's, there's dreams of what will end up in the cabinet. And they yeah. they're, they're dashed on five pound bottles of brandy and 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 cans of kestrel. Isn't that the fascinating thing about alcohol? Though it's it's it's, it's not a drug first and foremost. It's a toxin that, that that sort of acts upon your body in a certain way. Um, but call it a drug just for shorthand. It's the only one which people really kind of use on a regular basis. Which the um, it's kind of become it's a struggle from the moment you start drinking generally speaking particularly if you're drinking in social circumstances you're struggling against the drug as you take it in any other illegal substance which you would generally take in the privacy of your own home or among trusted friends true. you would sit back and just let it flow over you and you would enjoy the 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 full experience of the drug for exactly what it is but alcohol you kind of is a struggle from the first Drink to return to to kind of not fall over in public, not wet yourself in public, to stand up in the pub and and to kind of maintain a demeanour of at least. But it also gives rise, doesn't it? Despite the fact that it's actually 
probably going to land you in a really sordid physical situation. Yeah. It also gives rise to a kind of wonderful, warm, romantic nostalgia. Yeah. At the yeah. same time as you are descending into the exact opposite of that state, you will have these kind of poignant flashes of this or that. I mean, that's one of the things about the, the Drunken Baker book that I thought was that actually beneath that brutal exterior that I think that you're actually quite a, a sensitive poet, Barney. I think that you're, you're, you're like Wilfred Owen or somebody like that. Well... You know, but, uh, but no, I mean, like, that there's a real poetry in that book. It's sort of... It seemed to me like you are centering baking as the wholesome, dependable core of the human experience probably since the Stone Age. In fact, I was reading in one of the science magazines that they'd found evidence of baking and bread before we had agriculture. Yeah. Um, from hunter-gatherer times. That sort of, we were making bread. And in your book, there's this incredible poignance where bread and cake become yeah, a wonderful okay. shorthand for everything that was good and dependable and reliable about the past. Not just in England, but in the in the Drunken Baker, yeah, specifically England. Quite, it's a quite nostalgic book. I didn't really set out to write something nostalgic, but it did end up sort of nostalgic, and it is exactly that, that kind of... Um, it's... A, a lot of the it's all fictional of course but the, the kind of bits about uh, the bread and the baking and things that's that's probably the most personal stuff in it because I, I mean I sincerely really 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 do like pies I, 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 I was raised on pies we've always eaten colossal quantities of bread in our house we used to have a great bakery at the end of the road so well, the way you describe my the, mother the was a baker for, for a time the cooking of the onions for the uh, uh, the mince bit, the beef mince pies. Yeah, that works. There, yeah, that definitely works. And and the the thing about uh, running your hands under cold water before you rub out the dough for the scones. Oh yeah, he's got to have cold hands. Yeah, cold Which hands. You never, when we were doing our public scone making. Uh, you never told me about that. I think that you were trying to, <laughs> to get a sort of subtle advantage over me. Um, yeah, but I mean... That, although I did have the Sultanas in mind, so I'd got a kind of an advantage over you. I was handicapped by the, the book fast that I was contractually obliged to consume as, as part of that performance. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's what we talked about this on before. It was uh, my uh, my wife's uh, grandma, one of her great... Buck fast was her, her drink of choice. Yeah, she thought you could trust the monks, and we tried to explain that you know, but fast. These were evil you know, monks. Yeah, yeah. That they well, these were very bored monks. These were monks trying to find some way of uh, perhaps moving into a different mental state where they might not necessarily meet Jesus at that or, point. Or, but. or yes, we are monks, but our first passion is social engineering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> well, Tony Wine used to have. It was one of the drinks that was like infused with cocaine, wasn't it? 
I think the, Coke, most, yeah. the most popular brand of, of uh, tonic wine at the turn of the century was endorsed had a photograph of the Pope on the bottle and that, that was lashed up that was kind of just altar wine uh, uh, lashed up with a little bit of grain alcohol and cocaine uh, as far as I understand it and he was kind of like <laughs> gets me through the day boy didn't Tonic used to have heroin in it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps that's just something. Oh, no, no, it might have been a rumor. Uh, I was disappointed to find out. I'd always believed that Fanta was invented by Nazis, but apparently it's uh, it's quite a, a, a weak trail. No, that was Mr. Towards, uh, that was Mr. Whippy. Oh, was it Mr. Whippy? Well, Margaret oh, Thatcher. so the flake in it no, is Mr. actually meant to represent a, a yeah. Zeke Kyle. No, 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 no. <laughs> that that's that's for ninety nine. We're getting yeah, Mr. Whippy is something completely different. Well, Mr. Whippy Mr. sure Whippy. is what's on the side of the van. Yeah, that's just his name. It might be. I don't know. Mm. It'll have a say. The, the 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 substance itself will have a scientific name to which we. The thing not is that Mr. Whippy is not quite a symbol of traditional fascism. I don't know where you get that stuff with the angle of the flag from, quite frankly. But what Mr. That's Whippy? That's the contemporary twenty first century paranoia. Though. This is <laughs> soft whip ice cream that uh, utilised the elasticity of ice cream uh, with the realisation that you could whip more air into the mixture, thus enabling you to sell less ice cream for the same price. And the person who invented uh, this technique was Margaret Thatcher. So, uh, mm -hmm. soft whip fascism. Yeah. You know. And as the allusion, see, it's more aesthetically pleasing. Particularly, I thought in the area it was introduced, the, the swirl of a Mr. Whippy to a child, but a blob of the old, the old crappy round... Yeah. Ice cream. Look at that. It's towers up into the sky there. Yeah. You know, with the red stuff drooling down. It's, but it it's... vanishes as soon as you put it in your mouth like candy floss. Illusion. See, now that's the bread the thing, though, isn't it? it, as well. when you, in, in the book, quite often you talk about... And it is a, it's, it's an annoyance to me. My, my, my middle-age annoyance includes when I get a piece of bread and I go, well, if you try and spread butter on it, it falls apart. That's, <laughs> you know, that anger, that anger. And is that cool? Because I remember, I think it might have been in a, in a documentary by John Betterman, but it's certainly part of Metroland. It's called something like the Chorley Wood Method, or there's, there's some bakery place where they basically went, all we need now is, as long as you've got water and air... That's the main ingredient of bread, and then to create the the illusion of solidity, which is very rarely in most sliced bread, even one that's meant to be reasonable quality. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, you, you have to have. It's a subtly different substance, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So it's a bread that's generally been made from scratch, uh, yeah. in the kind of places where I mean, it, it was the thing about it is with, with the book is that there's still I mean I, I know loads of great artisan bakers and they still do. Uh, amazing bread to traditional recipes in, in with kind of time honoured uh, methods, but you, you pay a significant premium for that. And um, this wasn't particularly, you know, there was no provenance to this bread. We used to get a co-op. It was, it was a co-op town, um, so it was just the co-op's basic white bread. Did you have bread checks? Bread checks. Oh, we had milk checks. If you from the co-op. You'd no, buy these kind of little tokens, little oval tokens. There'd be milk checks and bread checks that you'd put on your doorstep to pay the right. milkman or the bread delivery guy. No, I don't recall that. We call things like the... Almost the have lived divvy. in a more picturesque part of the park. <laughs> then it'd have been hoovered off the doorsteps, <laughs> I think. Where do you think, in terms of the melancholy of 
because it, in in the book there's a there's a, an old comic strip you reference very early on, which I think is the possibly the saddest one, which is the 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 one which starts with a sex act in the park for uh, uh, over some gin, uh, and then the gin gets nicked. And um, what we basically realise is this 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 poor woman who we have no idea of her age. She looks old, but she might only be in her thirties. That she basically drowns herself in a canal, and uh, and then they, they see the last ripples of it and just go, "Oh, she must have just had enough of that gin and just left the bottle there." But you just get the scent in those ripples is clearly where <laughs> the last bubbles of her. Now, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff in Viz like that, and <laughs> but, but that that melancholy. Where, where where do you thought where do you, does that because of all the comic strips you do I think Baker's is the one which is the and the and the book as well there is you know the nostalgia the sadness the sense of loss the sense of wrong wrong paths taken generally I'm a kind of melancholic person and um, don't I was I was reading um, I was there was the Bolton conference of the weekend the leave means leave thing. And there was a photograph which showed this room full of fossils. Um, uh, clapping Nigel Farage, and I found a photograph of the de- of death from the Seventh Seal, <laughs> and kind of dropped in the midst of that, and then went uh, fishing through the script looking for quotes which I could put in there, little pun along with that, which would time with the UKIP thing and I was reminded as I kind of went through the script and read the quotes and the, the chunks of dialogue that it's um, despite being an, an absolutely utterly pessimistic film which extends no hope um, There's a lovely dance routine at the end though isn't there? Yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. film and it's a funny film It's Conger, funny, Conger isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah It's funnier than every um, um, for every attempt to spoof it it's actually it's, it's full of really good gags, verbal gags and visual visual gags. And there's sort of there's that kind of thing, it's that if you embrace the pessimism to a to a, to its fullest extent, it, the, that in itself can you know, futility is humorous. And futility if you believe that all human life is ultimately futile, which is the view I would tend towards. That is I find that quite a that well, cheers, if it's cheers not, cheers then... me up a lot, and find a lot of humour in life. By bearing in mind that everything that we all do is fundamentally meaningless. Yeah, but I mean, the thing about human life being ultimately futile—that is a nihilistic position, which is rather belied by the fact that you obviously still care enough about it to put it down on a bit of paper. Yeah, I think but it's ultimately futile. Isn't that the important thing? It's ultimately futile, but it doesn't mean that you go. Well, it's ultimately futile, so, so, so I might as well fill it with some stuff. Well, might this, as well do some stuff well, before the the ultimate uh, futility. Well, well, kind of that's what I was going to say. Where if you kind of embrace that honestly and sort of accept it honestly, it is, it is a positive thing. It does motivate you in that mm. way. It's kind of almost like a reverse psychology. I think. Well, that's my personal take on it. Is that it kind of adds a layer of meaning in a way rather than taking. I think there's meaning away, so everything somehow feels more I, I, vital and more. I think there's enormous compassion in the strip, although it wouldn't. It's so brutal on the surface that that's probably the last word that a lot of people would apply to it. Yeah. But I'm thinking more of the the more unpleasant drunken baker, the little curly one, mm. who is absolutely mm. hateful, and yet um, 
in the course of the book in in drunken biker uh we start to get a bit of an idea about what his background is and you have little flashes of it in the drunken biker strip um that he was brutalized by his dad that um mm. there's a bit about him remembering his father's funeral and how happy his mum and everybody were <laughs> and uh, you suddenly I don't know you you realize that everybody is just working out their programs um, that they had imposed upon them probably before they were yeah old enough to understand what they were yeah you know it's um it's miserable but it is it's honest. Life can hide away you to an extent, can't it? It can hide away your expectations and your interpretations uh, of, of of everything that comes after, especially those formative years where you're kind of um, you're just beginning to cognize and make connections and, and decide what is important and what isn't important and what matters and what doesn't matter and how things are meant to be and how things are and the gap between all those kind of things form the bedrock of a person in the, fir- the very first few years of their life and then sometimes you manage to transcend those and sometimes circumstances send you in a different direction people aren't able to transcend those that's the, the interesting the idea of being able to transcend it I think is in a bit where in in the in the book that I've just the one that I've just done that bit where you 40 years later you can go oh right and it's the fact <laughs> to be so distant from events and be able to because I wrote in in, in in the book you talk um, about the accident the car that, crash that yeah. your had, yeah. and yeah, it's such, such a weird thing I, I, was, I, was, I was just about to be three years old and in fact reading Drunken Bakers it reminded me because uh, one, of, one of my little memories is it was going to be my third birthday party my mum was going to be making a cake but of course because she was in a coma at the time because there'd then been a car accident uh, got her it, off the it, hook. Was a, it was one from Russell's Bakery and I think it was probably a Dougal cake from Russell's Bakery they were good bakery Russell's Bakery but now like I had that horrible moment of handing over the book to my dad and mm-hmm. to one of my sisters and that moment of going ah though I can talk about things publicly now this goes to the family. I don't, you know, that, that. Yeah. And there was a bit yeah. where, sorry, I'm going, talking a long way around about this, but the car accident now, because I was three, one of my sisters would have been seven or just about to be eight, and the other one was ten. So it affects us all very differently. And to be mm-hmm. a three-year-old who then thinks you actually caused a crash, because when you're three, your actions cause everything. You know that yeah. thing where, yeah, go, yeah. oh, I did that, and then that happened, right? And now, get, working through it, it was like, oh, that makes a huge amount of sense to so many different kind of seedlings that grew out of that event and it and I'm, I'm in a fortunate position probably due you know the culture I was brought up in the background all that kind of thing means that I'm able to transcend the possibilities of what like yeah and, and I yeah. think that's a very, that moment of working out what your creation myth might have been because that's kind of in, in the book I kind of look at because I think comics are all they always write about the creation myths of comics yeah they always write about you know if, if someone did lose a parent or is adopted or something happens then that's it that's the whole that's all that was required that's the only manure that was required to throw over <laughs> that human being for all yeah. of the jokes and the sadness to grow and I, and I think that that actually kind of shrinks the possibilities of why people become as they are but yeah. I am fascinated in create what what people can connect in their past so you as a, as a creator of sometimes i mean 
some of the Mail Online is is a tremendously you know that 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 has a huge amount of energy. <laughs> I think between that and George Bestial are probably your most energetic strips. Probably actually because even Bestial has some melancholy. Whereas mm, Mail Online is is a beautiful explosion on page, and yeah. then Drunken Bakers, which has this melancholy, this attachment where. The saddest bubbles to me in those are those little moments where you do see a past and everyone is cleaner and everyone is happier. And they've got families. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the thing about it is, is is that kind of memory is something that I'm really interested in at the minute, the nature of memory, the nature of of history, the the living times, which are kind of... um, I I find this culture we have is obsessed by history history is, is venerated probably to a higher degree than it can have been at any time certainly my my adult life and um, yet there seems this unwillingness to actually learn anything from history it's like almost we're forgetting the lessons of history even as we f- focus and zero in on it all just the more been, just been reading a book by Slavoj Žižek called yeah, First as Tragedy Then as Farce uh, which is not a bad summing up of the processes. I think it's mainly because at the moment the future is incredibly uncertain. The present seems to be, frankly, falling to bits. Yeah. So that does tend to rather make us focused upon the past, even those parts of it which weren't that pleasant to actually live through. Uh, I think that retrospectively they seem a lot more comprehensible than the times we're going through at the moment. They're fixed, they're not going to change, are they? Well, they'll change for the better because we'll kind of give them a nice little polish every time we dig those memories out. We've got, since we began as a species, we've been accumulating information, which is a Mm. substance that we can't actually see. Uh, We can only see the results of it um, I would say that with that information unavoidably we're also gathering complexity and I'd say that that is one of the problems that is most serious in the present day because we really don't handle complexity very well and we run off to become like polarised as, a, as a, perhaps a response to it yeah it's back, well, it's, it's almost like um, that cheerful liberal optimist H.P. Lovecraft <laughs> said in, I think it was in The Call of Cthulhu that he thought that uh, it was the greatest mercy that mankind could not correlate all of its information but that a day was coming when such a thing might be possible <laughs> and he believed that the call of Google embracing all of that light of information that mankind would probably retreat from it into the shadows of a new dark age. Um, That sounds, he might have been for once on the money there. You know, it's sort of that there is so much information, so much knowledge that people are shutting off from it and it is no longer reliable because it is from so many 
tainted sources. Yeah, that's in there's a um, this book that I've just been reading now, uh, Lawrence Scott, uh, Picnic, comma Lightning, uh, which is a great uh, title, and yeah. it's uh, I, I you 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 would have probably you've read Lolita, haven't you? I imagine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whereas whereas I haven't, and I didn't know that's Picnic, comic Light, Light, Picnic, comma Lightning is apparently the summary Humbert Humbert gives of is it Humbert Humbert or Hubert? It's, Humbert Humbert. Yeah, yeah. Humbert Humbert. The, his summary of uh, the the full life of it, it. Mother mother died young, and then it's open brackets picnic comma lightning which is a, and but it's really interesting his other book was very interesting as well four dimensional human and it's he says at one point that someone has written that there will be no more statues in the future because everyone will have had feet of clay because everything is open because the difference between the public and the private because of what social media all of these different ways of accessing means there will be no more great humans because there will always be a story that says, oh, you know that yeah. great human? Hold on a Actually, minute. I found out that person did that as well. And that person said that. And in 2001, they put that on their MySpace account or whatever it might be, that there will always be... Um... Yeah, so you, you'd enjoy it. It's a very it's, interesting story. It's a bit like stories. Momus, isn't it? Um, the god Momus, uh, who is a bit of a wag, um, likes a joke, and I think he's the one who suggests that all human beings should have glass plates set into their chests so that we can see their hearts and know what is in their hearts. But it's like that is what social media and technology are actually inflicting upon us without any need for intervention by the gods. Well, it, there's, there's an element of that. There's an element of people, uh, the indiv- people who are um, much more constructed, though. Now I think than they were. I think the demands of social media mean that it's it's, it's <coughs> you, you see like an event that will happen in the real world. I tend to spend as much time now on Twitter just watching it and seeing how <laughs> it responds yeah. to, to certain events, and um, there's a ubiquity of response to any any given statement or event will occur and. You guarantee that there's there'll be two camps either side of it, and that the, the responses will be broadly, broadly similar. They'll be couched in similar terms. We'll use the same buzzwords. Where buzzwords will travel through absolute boy. This is this great now absolute in front of any word has just entered the language, and you just see it now. Um, in every second or third communication that. There's not the. I'm trying to think. What I'm trying to say. There's something about the 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 pace of how we perceived events before um, digital technology was was broadly matched to our ability to to kind of deal with them and to like sort of formulate an individual response. Yeah. So quick now that it's it's, it's easier to fall into a one of two. I see. I, I, I think there is an illusion. That, that it looks like there's more tribalism. It looks like everything's moving faster. But when I do actually find old newspapers from the seventies and the eighties, and the tribalism, the dogma, the misinformation, mm-hmm. I, I wonder. It's travelling in a different way. 
But I'm not, I'm not entirely sure whether if we go, I'll tell you what, if I can go back in time and just make sure that there was no social media, I reckon by now we'd be living in utopia. <laughs> and I think there's a little bit of me that likes to think, you know, if, I'll tell you what, get rid of the emoticons and actually everyone would have a real happy face. And now I think, well, actually I think it's just, it's, it's we found a different way of excusing, oh, I'll tell you now why human beings appear to be real fuckers, it's because of this. But actually, th- I wonder. It's, it's my little bit of, uh, uh, you know. Obviously, I, I detest being optimistic. There's no no art to be found there, is there? But uh, just that. It's an act of faith. Yeah. In, in large part, optimism. Well, I also, think. I think that. I mean, one of the things you were mentioning was that people tend to create personas for themselves more mm. on social media. But I think that what Robin says, it's just that. This is something that we've always done. It's just a new way of doing it. I mean, I was reading about, uh, oh, was it Instagram? Uh, It was saying that a lot of people are being made depressed by Instagram, looking at other people's fake lives and thinking, oh, that's so much better than my fake life. Um, (laughs) You you know, it's and people are faking their lives. They're they're selecting. Gorgeous moments, yeah. Um, that are going to be real. Oh, this is me in some exotic location doing something lovely. It's not necessarily the way then that they're faking their lives. It's almost kind of like the way that the media or any um, uh, entity, when when an event occurs in the real world, the 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 aim is to try and seize the narrative, isn't it? And then and then to kind of define the the, the direction that the story will develop. But, I think we've we've always done, or at least I have. I mean, I remember, I almost remember, uh, because I think I've blotted a lot of this out. I think perhaps we all do. But I can remember getting to the age of about 12, 13, something like that, uh, probably puberty, and suddenly realising that the personality that I thought of as my natural personality, i.e. the personality that had been shaped by my family circle and by my school friends and things like that over the first 10 or so years of my life, that that wasn't going to work. If I wanted to be, if I wanted to have a girlfriend, that if I wanted to sort of be a normal teenage boy, if I wanted to grow up, then that personality wasn't going to work. So almost unconsciously, I think we all start to piece together a working personality yeah. at probably the advent of puberty, which we borrow things from actual real people that we admire, or more often, completely fictional people that we admire. People on television or people in books. Yeah, culture is the, is the real sort of agent of change, I think. In, and then we forget we've done it. Condition. Then we forget that we've actually done that and we think, yeah, this is just me. This is my personality. This is not something that I bolted together, a weird Frankenstein creation when I was about 13. This is actually me. And um, I I think that our identities, it's just that social media gives us a much quicker and easier way of doing that. We can filter out more of the stuff that we don't like to people yeah. who aren't actually going to meet us in the flesh. 
Or maybe we don't, because it always leaks in in the end. If anything, it doesn't create a bubble. I think it's easier to have a bubble not to be attached to it, because you always end up for... But it's that what I find most interesting about social media, and I don't know if you've found this, uh, Barney, which is that there's some people that you thought you knew, but they forget the public, you know, the persona you're talking about, Anna, yeah, that, that persona in the pub, that persona where you go, you suddenly go, oh, when we're not around, you know, whatever you're... When they're not trying to reflect... You know, the culture yeah. and the politics. You, you go, oh, fuck, this guy's a real arsehole. I didn't know that he was into these. Th-. You know that bit where... Yeah. So this is an interesting thing about authenticity. Either, you know, in fact, you are more authentic or you remember to maintain your persona when you're on social media, one or the other. Yeah. Whereas there's other people where I've actually gone, oh, I had no idea this was... This would never come up if we were in the pub together because they would go, oh, I'm trying to make sure that I'm continuing to reflect the, uh, you know, like that, what, what's it called? The um, uh, neuro-linguistic programming. Yeah. You realise that some people are casually doing that NLP thing all the time. They think, oh, you know, Barney loves uh, baking and drinking. I'll talk to him about eclairs and Jaeger bombs. But yeah. it turns out that person has no real interest in eclairs and Jaeger bombs when you look at their Facebook account. Or me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, me or any of those things, you just you, you you can you know you just become a nod, don't you? Which can be regarded as particularly or vaguely hip for a period, yeah. and and therefore you you will engage people's attention for a short while. Um, I don't know. Maybe I, again, maybe that's that is my 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 pessimism, possibly leaking out there. Um, my fairly dim view of the human condition. But it's good to start, like you said, to start with the idea that it's ultimately futile and to start with a dim view is mm. probably, it gives you a certain amount of momentum. Uh, I mean, it can do the opposite, of course, you know, futility. And, but I, I, I agree with you that those, those things sometimes, if, if you just believe that all humans ultimately, you know, uh, joyous, wonderful people who all love David Attenborough, you know, that, yeah, yeah. That, that you'll always, it's good to know that also it makes you feel better. Because sometimes you look and you go, Jesus Christ, aren't there an enormous number of really horrible people? And I don't think I'm as horrible. So you might be a little bit, there's your blue blanket of comfort as well. Still, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there are people <coughs> who would find you absolutely, thoroughly objectionable. And, 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 and I too. And even, even Alan, if we, we could oh, believe that. It's, there, sure there are there. some people who are just unreasonable. <laughs> well, something new every day. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Uh, this is uh, part one. It turned out we talked in the uh, in in this particular front room in Northampton for nearly two hours. So uh, part two will be out very soon. Thank you very much to Barney uh, and Alan. And uh, go and buy Drunken Baker. Go and buy League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And uh, I'm on tour with my new book. I'm a joke, and so are you as well. So you'll find details of this at CosmicShambles.com. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Mm-hmm.